One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Well, you know who's coming to the room now when you hear that. None other than Liz Davis, our uh, producer <laughs> of the programme. Uh, so this week... Uh, well, normally you would hear hail to the chief, actually, when you uh, encounter the president no, of the United States. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, this week we're talking about the US presidential election, but with a slightly different spin on it. We're talking about third party candidates. So the candidates who are not the Democratic nominee or the Republican nominee. The US has always had a two party system. And I mean, there have been lots of questions about whether... Possibly this time, given that both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are so unpopular, whether this might be the moment. How many candidates are there? So the last time I checked, I've been having great fun going through the Federal Election Commission list of everyone who's filed for president. And I think the last time I checked, it was 1,869. Now, some of these candidates are more serious than others. You can find Hillary Rodham Clinton's name in there. You can find Gary Johnson, the Libertarian candidate's name. But you can also find lots of others some of my favourites are uh, Zorro the Cockroach, <laughs> I think we can assume is probably not a serious candidate. Uh, Sydney's Voluptuous Buttocks, probably also not a serious candidate. And of course, some uh, well-known names. Han Solo is running for president, believe it or not. And also uh, Darth Vader. Strength through authority. Peace through hostility. Balance through tyranny. This November, vote Vader. And together, we can rule the galaxy. There we are. Very good. Mr. Vader has got a TV ad together, which is presumably only online. It's a very good topic. It's obviously germane. And this is this week's News Hour Extra on the American political system. So, it's Trump versus Clinton. Well, actually, it's not. Uh, this is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour Extra and the news this week that there are other candidates in the US presidential election. Some of them, such as Gary Johnson of the Libertarians and Dr Jill Stein of the Greens, and we have an interview with her coming up in around half an hour, are standing in enough states that they could actually win the White House if enough people voted for them. And then there are still smaller parties, such as the third oldest in the United States, the Prohibition Party, that stands opposed to the sale and consumption of alcohol, the Legal Marijuana Now Party, speaks for itself, and the Nutrition Party, run by a restaurateur who opposes junk food. And so it goes on. And there is an important issue here. Have the two main parties got the system so locked up that no one else gets a look in? It's a point The Simpsons made back in 1996 with the help of a couple of alien candidates. America! Take a good look at your beloved candidates. They're nothing but hideous space reptiles. It's true. We are aliens. But what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us. He's right. This is a two-party system. Well, I believe I'll vote for a third-party candidate. Go ahead. Throw your vote away! (laughs) (laughs) 
There we are. And on the programme today, let me introduce our panel. We have a presidential candidate, uh, Zoltan Isfan, who may relate to what we just heard there. We'll ask him about that. He's standing for the US presidency as the candidate of the Transhumanist Party. And uh, we'll talk about what that is as well. And Lawrence Lessig, academic, lawyer and political activist, a professor at Harvard Law School and a former candidate for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination. We've also got Greg Orman, a former independent Senate candidate in Kansas. That was back in 2014. And he's written a book, A Declaration of Independence, T.S., How We Can Break the Two-Party Stranglehold and Restore the American Dream. And we have Professor Marjorie Hershey from Indiana University in Bloomington. So, Zoltan Isfan, since you are going through the process now, as it were, can you just tell us how you go about standing for the U.S. presidency? Well, you know, uh, registering to be a presidential candidate is really easy. You can do it online in a few minutes. But the, uh, you know, the tricky part, of course, is getting um, any sort of media recognition or, um, you know, being competitive on any kind of national level. And uh, I think there's something like 17 or 1800, you know, registered presidential candidates out there right now. And, you know, broadly, the majority of them have no influence whatsoever in the um, in the political process, in the electing of a president. I've been lucky that... Um, as a journalist, I'm able to get out a lot of opinion pieces and a lot of uh, different kinds of... Uh, I get a lot of media, frankly, because I, I you know, represent sort of science and technology. It's a new angle. And so I've at least been able to you know, make a bit of an imprint into the elections itself. But I think most candidates are struggling to run for the presidency, even though we are sort of told as we were growing up as children that anyone can run. But I, I really don't uh, believe that anyone can run successfully anymore. OK, but just to go through the, the, the technicalities of it, and, and actually the number is, I think, as of today, 1,896 people have done this bit of it, which is register with the Federal Election Commission online, right? Yes, that's how I did it. How long did that take? Three to four minutes if you know where to you know, print your name. OK, and you put your name down there and your party... Well, you know, that becomes a difficult, a different issue. Um, the Transhumanist Party, which I represent, a small uh, science and technology party, is not FEC registered because that's a whole nother issue. It takes, frankly, years, I think, to get a political party registered through the system because you need state parties, you need other federal candidates to run. Um, so I have to put either other or independent down when I registered, um, you know, as a presidential candidate, even though I do represent a, a political party in America. I see. But once you've got this online thing done, three-minute job, no one can vote for you yet because you're not on the ballot in any state. So just talk us through how you would go about that. Well, you're still going to be able to be, you know, written in in, in a couple different ballots, uh, I believe nine or ten, without doing anything whatsoever, uh, as long as you're, you know, an FEC-registered uh, presidential candidate. Now, the trick, of course, is getting on the real state ballots, and in some states, it's absolutely impossible, at least for someone who doesn't have, you know, uh, $50 million. In California, it requires a huge amount of signatures. The same thing with uh, Texas or in Florida, and those are sort of the main ballot states where you get your electoral votes. Um, some states are a lot easier. In Colorado, you only need to get nine signatures. And uh, in, in some other uh, you know, states in the middle of America, you only need to get 250 or 1,000. But broadly speaking, you've got to go out there and collect it. And uh, you know, it can be very expensive, especially if you represent uh, what I represent, which is uh, something a bit strange. Uh, you know, most people don't even know what a transhumanist is. So as a result, most people are not going to want to put their signature down to get you on any state ballot. I better ask you, what is a transhumanist? Sure. A transhumanist is just somebody who advocates for using science and technology 
technology to radically modify the human being. Anything from exoskeleton suits to to using uh, brain implants to uh, artificial cars. Okay, so so just just to before we go to the rest of the panel, just to understand this, you, you, in some states you, there'll be the printed names Clinton, Trump, and then underneath a blank space where you could write in the name of a candidate such as yourself. Yes. So in some states, that will be the case. And, uh, you know, we've pushed really hard in a couple of states like Florida, where maybe our 5,000, if we can even get 5,000 voters might actually make a, a difference to swing the dial between Clinton and Trump. But broadly speaking, they'll just have to write you in. And that, that's tough because they're not seeing your name. You actually have to get their support uh, ahead of time. And can I presume in Colorado, finally, where it only takes nine signatures that you got the nine? So I, I mean, I'm presuming you're on the ballot in Colorado. So, you know, we're not even on the ballot in Colorado. We had to make a decision about what resources we had and where to spend it. And frankly, it just doesn't um, it doesn't even make sense to spend the fifteen hundred dollars that's required to register in Colorado. Um, you know, getting the nice signatures takes five minutes, I think. But actually, um, you know, paying that kind of money, we would rather spend it on traveling through Florida where we have a, a better chance to impact the election. So we have bypassed the idea of any of the state ballots whatsoever just because it's so tough to do and so complicated to spend all our resources on the right in candidacy in Florida as a means to maybe impact the elections overall. OK, well, it's very interesting, and we'll, we'll, we'll hear more from you in the course of the programme. Uh, but let's just get some reaction to this process now. Uh, Lawrence Lessig, you did this, but you tried to stand through the two-party system, in a way, for, for the Democratic Party. Yes, that's right. Uh, my objective was to try to put at the centre of the Democratic primary the corrupting influence of money in our political process, which I think underscores every one of these issues and in some sense makes this question of independence very troubling because if you're an independent but you have to raise money from the very same people that the Republicans and Democrats are raising money from, your freedom uh, to be different is really constrained. So I tried to make that a fundamental issue by getting into the democratic debates. Uh, but what I found was the system was was very reluctant, at least the Democrats were, to include anybody who wasn't a politician in those democratic debates. So though I raised a million dollars in less than 30 days, and though, uh, according to the rules of the Democratic Party, all I needed was to get 1% in three polls within six weeks of the debates, when I got 1% in three polls within six weeks of the debates, they changed the rules and they oh, really? told me I couldn't, I couldn't be in the debate. Well, which so does prompt the question, why would, you, why would you throw in your lot with such a group? Why didn't you stand as an independent? Well, you know, I totally agree with people who say that the duopoly in the American political process is incredibly debilitating for the diversity of actual political views that there are in America today. So I'm all with those who are trying to break that duopoly and to expand the opportunities uh, for that diversity. But the reality is right now that duopoly is real. Um, And so what I had hoped was that By standing within the Democratic Party and forcing the Democratic Party to confront what both Democrats and Republicans increasingly recognize, this deeply corrupting influence of money in the political process, we could begin to push towards a more inclusive political process, because in my view, the only solution to this problem is to support some sort of citizen funding or public funding of elections, which would enable independence much more than uh, 90% of the other reforms so that get, people are talking about. Yeah, get the money out of it, is, is you think the key the key thing. Well, let's bring in Greg Orman, our third candidate, but you were at, uh, not at the presidential level, you were at the Senate level in Kansas. How many percent did you win, in fact? 
we ended up getting 43% of the vote in Kansas. So it, it, it actually ended up being a remarkably close race. Uh, for most of uh, September and October, I was leading in the polls. Ultimately, we ended up coming up a little bit short. And I think you had been a member of both parties or registered as a, as a supporter of both parties, the main parties before. Yeah. And what I, what I said in my campaign was, you know, I've been a part of both parties in the past. I've supported candidates from both parties in the past. And generally, I've been disappointed with the results. You know, the, the reason I ran for office and we all come at this uh, a little differently. For me, it was about policy in the political reform community. And, and Professor Lessig uh, referred to this. There are really two distinct groups, those groups that are trying to create what I would call higher functioning Democrats and Republicans. And a big part of that is about getting rid of the corrupting influence of money. And then there's another group that's looking to expand the supply of choices for voters so that we can get a more responsive government. And that, that's really what my attempt to run uh, for the U.S. Senate was in, in 2014, was to really send a message to both parties that you can't go to Washington and hide behind your party label. Uh, you actually have to get something done for the American people. And, and will you stand again? You know, I, I like I said, I enjoyed the process. I thought it was a great privilege to be able to talk to voters about issues that they that they cared about. And if an opportunity presented itself, I, I wouldn't hesitate. Oh, that's a yes in politics, even for a non-party man. Let's bring in Professor Hershey now. Just first of all, your general reaction to all this criticism of the two-party system. Well, let me be the voice of doom here. Um, I think that it certainly makes a wonderful debate to be able to broaden the range of voices that are present in an election. But notice that we don't have anybody here who is actually taking office. And I think it's very important, and this is with all due respect to my colleagues here, um, we have a whole series of reasons why there's been a two-party system in the United States for 140 years. And when people talk about breaking that system, um, the first thing we have to confront is, if it's been around for that long, the chances are there is a good reason or two why it's been. And uh, that good reason or two involves the nature of our election system, the first-past-the-post system, which you have in the UK as well, but uh, without various other kinds of structural features like the Electoral College that we have here. We also have ballot access laws that my colleagues have referred to that are made by the states, not by the federal government. So they all vary. So if you're going to run nationally, you have to learn each of those 50 states ballot access laws and comply with them. That's a very difficult thing to do. And then you have to get some electoral votes, which means you may, you need to get a plurality in at least one state. Been quite a while since that's happened. Yeah, but I, I guess the point that the obvious point against, you know, you're saying it's been around a long time and there must be a reason for that. And let me put it to you that the reason is that the two big parties have it all stitched up, they get the rules changed, they don't let other people join the debates, for example, and, and, and in various ways crowd out the, the smaller parties. So it's a self-fulfilling system. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is a self-fulfilling system. Right. So uh, what's going to happen as a result? And my response is, um, and you can put whatever normative spin on this you'd like to, very little. Okay, let, let's listen to uh, President Obama, who has, uh, I think you might have said, pretty much agree with you, actually. Let, let's hear what he said. This country works when you have two parties that are serious and trying to solve problems, and they've got philosophical differences, and they have fierce debates, and they argue, and they contest elections, but 
at the end of the day, what you want is a healthy two-party system. So, no, Professor Hershey, he's going further than you. He's saying it, it, it works well. It can work well. Sooner or later in a democracy, you need to reach a majority. You either need to do that by having a whole series of views represented prior to the election in which people can have a wide range of choices, which might include Mr. Orman and Mr. Lessig. But then somebody has to be able to get at least 50 percent in the legislature in order to pass legislation. And somebody has to sit in the White House, which is going to be held by one person, not by a cabinet of several people who can be divided among parties. In a multi-party system, what happens is that that majority gets made after the election is over, so that whichever party can gather 50-plus percent becomes the majority party. In a two-party system, it's just simply the case that the majority comes before the election. And let let me just throw this open to the rest of you. Uh, What about that point that, you know, you've got to do it somehow. And in this particular election, it would have been the perfect opportunity for a third candidate to come through because all the polling shows that the two main candidates are not popular and they got strong negatives. So this was a year you could do it. But, you know, people people aren't supporting the the small candidates. Yeah, so this is uh, Larry Lessig. Um, I mean, it's first important to point out that the quote that you pulled from President Obama was mainly a criticism of the way the Republican Party has evolved. It wasn't an endorsement of the two-party system, regardless of how it is framed. And that's the point to look at in the American two-party system right now. The way, for example, the House of Representatives has been gerrymandered, has produced a Congress that does not represent the American people because the safe seat gerrymandering, where they draw districts to protect uh, certain seats against any possible challengers, produces a Congress that is more extreme than the American public. So when you have winner-take-all gerrymandered districts like this, then that produces a Congress which is not representative. And in a representative democracy, an unrepresentative body cannot be praised, regardless of your love of two parties or three parties parties or whatever. So if you're going to have a two-party system, at the very least, we have to have rules that enable the production of something closer to representative uh, body in Congress. And this duopoly has worked as hard as it can to avoid precisely that. This is Greg Orman from Kansas City. Uh, You know, as as an example of that, Uh, After we put an electoral scare in the Republicans in Kansas, their natural reaction wasn't to say, how do we become more responsive to voters? How do we uh, adapt our policies so that we avoid these scares in the future? How do we put up better candidates? It was to say, how do we change the rules so that independents can't thrive in Kansas? The other thing I think is important to note here is that while this system has survived for 200 years, there have been dramatic changes over the last 20 years uh, that mean that its survival is not necessarily guaranteed. And in fact, Bill Gates once made the comment that we tend to overestimate the amount of change that we're going to see in two years and underestimate the amount of change we'll see over 10. Fully 43% of Americans now self-identify as politically independent. Uh, It is now the largest cohort of voters uh, in America. Uh, In addition to that, uh, there is no longer any ideological overlap in the United States Senate or the United States House of Representatives. So 20 years ago, uh, they were able to actually get things done because Republicans and Democrats shared common points of view. 
Today, that doesn't happen. The net result of all that is we have a Congress, as Professor Lessig has said, that is absolutely unresponsive to the needs of the American people. Yeah, well, let me just bring in uh, Professor Hershey on this point. We, we, we keep hearing that, that you know, so many voters say they're all the same. You know, these politicians, they're all the same. And yet, they've just heard the point there from Greg Orman that they're not the same. You know, there are strong disagreements between the two parties, probably clearer than they've been for years. That's absolutely true. Let me offer a couple of corrections here. Mr. Arman is entirely right when he says that when you first ask people, about 40% of them will say they're independent. What he doesn't add is that normally it's considered good polling practice to press those people who at first say, no, I'm not a Democrat or Republican, and then say, but do you lean toward one party or the other? And we find that about three quarters of the remaining um, 40% say, yeah, I do, actually. And when we look at their voting behavior, we find that they are indistinguishable from the people who first said they were Democrats and Republicans. So although there are a lot of people who hate the parties, uh, we are still about a 90 percent partisanship country. It's also interesting to think of the fact that even if there weren't gerrymandering, which is certainly a, a major problem, the Democrats and Republicans are distributed across the United States in a way that makes it tougher for the Democrats to get represented in Congress. Congress, because Democrats get disproportionate support in the big cities uh, so that Democrats running for Congress in the big cities and those big city districts get wasteful majorities of the vote. They get elected by 75, 80, 85 percent. Republicans are more equally distributed geographically around the country. So that means that even if the districts were perfectly arranged without gerrymandering, we would still end up with having the Democrats find it more difficult to get represented in the United States House. That's an interesting point. I'm just going to put a a tape to you, uh, Zoltan Istvan, because here are you running for the presidency. And, you know, the argument we're about to hear can be made that, you know, maybe more modest ambitions in the beginning of a political career may be more appropriate. So this is uh, Dan Savage on a podcast, Savage Love, and he went on what might be described as a bit of a tirade or rant when one of his callers asked, why didn't he give more airtime to third party candidates like Green candidate Jill Stein, who we're going to hear from later? And here's a little bit of what uh, Dan Savage had to say to that. Yeah, let's talk about... The Green Party, for just a moment, or the or, or third parties, getting a, a third party movement off the ground here in this country, because we are sick of the two-party system. Here's how you do that. You run people not just for president every four years. If you are interested in building a third party, a viable third party, you don't start with president. Where are the Green Party candidates? for city councils, for county councils, for state legislatures. I would be so willing to vote for Green Party candidates who are starting at the bottom, grassroots, bottom up, building a third party, a viable third party. You don't do that by trotting out the reanimated corpse of Ralph Nader every four years. Well, strongly put, and, and Mr. Nader is still alive, I should say. But uh, Zoltan Isvan, he's got a point, hasn't he, that if you want to build a national party, you start at the grassroots. Of course he has a point, but, you know, it's also beyond uh, the, the real comprehension of things. The fact is most presidential candidates, including myself, are running on what we call a protest vote, where we're trying to actually spread something because... At the local level, you couldn't make any headway either. I mean, you have to understand the entire system is completely biased against 
any third party. And you're seeing this more strongly than any other thing I've seen is um, is how Gary Johnson was excluded from the debates, despite the fact that he might get 15 million votes in America come November. Yeah, yeah, but so in that case, it, he could. I mean, that's a good example. I mean, he could and the Greens could. Yeah, there are, I think it's, the number is quite extraordinary, something like 520,000 elected officers in the United States. And surely the Greens and Libertarians are good examples of parties that could get a lot of local representation if they had the organisational drive to do it. But, you know, the organizational drive to do it has a lot to do with resources. And uh, what's happening here, and especially this happens with me and my party, is that it's very hard to get anyone to actually put anything into it because they feel like it's throwing away a vote. Let's look at the the facts. The Libertarian Party has been around for 40 years. And after, um, you know, after that amount of time, it's finally for the very first time gotten on the state on all 50 state ballots. You know, when people talk to me about starting the transhumanist party, do I have to wait 40 years to actually, you know, run a candidate that's going to be on all 50 state ballots? That's not a fair system. A fair system is that you can walk in and maybe in a couple of years you formed a real party that can, you know, be represented on all 50 state ballots. So when you talk about a third party, you're not just talking about an underdog. You're talking about somebody who's just completely chained from the get go. We're going to take a short break now. Just to remind you, please do let us know what you think of the programme. We say this every week, but we do uh, enjoy receiving your communications and respond to them. Newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Uh, if you've got ideas, it's one hour, one topic every week. And you can tweet me on Owen Bennett-Joan. I'm afraid it's got no S because Twitter doesn't have enough letters. Owen Bennett-Joan. And if you enjoy the programme, do get the podcast and that is BBC NewsHour Extra Podcast. Just put that into your app or your search engine and you'll get uh, one edition every week downloaded to your device. Now, in the very close hanging Chad election of 2000, the numbers suggest that had the Green Party candidate, Ralph Nader, who we heard mentioned in the first half of the programme, if he'd not stood, George W. Bush would not have won. So was he right to stand? This time round, that dilemma is faced by the Green Party presidential candidate, Dr Jill Stein, who insists she's running to offer an alternative. In 2012, she ran and won a third of 1% of the vote. Policies? Dr Stein has called for shutting down US military bases abroad. She says she wouldn't have killed Osama bin Laden, that her Secretary of State would be the woman who founded the anti-war group Code Pink and that Edward Snowden would be in her cabinet. I asked if she's expecting to win. Put it this way, uh, the American people have many obstacles to asserting democracy. And the first is that they deserve to be informed about their choices. And my goal is to ensure that the American people not only have a right to vote, but that they have a right to know who they can vote for. That's the objective immediately in front of me. But you couldn't really achieve that because you weren't in the presidential debate. There is an illegitimate commission which is run by the Democratic and Republican parties for the express purpose of strengthening those two parties and silencing political opposition. That is a violation of the very framework of democracy. But what about this argument? If you want to establish your credentials as a serious national party on the national stage, the way to do that is to get serious numbers of people elected to the half million or so elected offices in the United States, you know, local government offices, governorships, that sort of thing, and then you'd be more credible nationally, no? Are you suggesting that uh, the national government be given a pass as it is uh, spending over half of our national budget 
on these wars that are not making us safer? Should we be silent while nearly half of your income taxes in this country are going to pay for this defense department, which is actually an offense department? You know, the, the purpose of democracy is not to give a pass to a government that, in fact, most voters have rejected the two nominees of these two establishment parties. Voters have rejected them at unprecedented rates of disapproval and distrust. Well, I'm not really suggesting that. I I'm suggesting that if you're going to have a presidential TV debate, you've got to draw the line somewhere. You can't have 1,700 candidates on the screen at the same time. So you're on the ballot in a large number of states, but not all the states. Uh, 48 states, which cover about 95, 98%. So it's more than enough to win the election. Don't voters have a right to know who their realistic choices are? We actually have a real party that has chapters in every state, in most cities. We run hundreds of candidates for local office. We are a real party. But unfortunately, in the U.S., uh, we have a political system which silences political opposition. Do you worry that if the polls are right and you got 3% and the election was decided by less than 3% and Trump won, that you would have handed Trump victory? First of all, I will feel terrible if Trump wins and I will feel terrible if Hillary Clinton wins. Hillary Clinton has an absolutely catastrophic record of foreign policy. And secondly, let me say, the New York Times ran an article last week showing that about four out of ten eligible American voters will not vote. And they're not coming out because they support neither the Democrat nor the Republican. Over 70% of Americans don't know about my campaign. Uh, I am the unlikely candidate speaking to the unlikely voter in this very unlikely election. I, I'm not here to dictate anybody's uh, strategy for voting. I'll say for myself, it's a race to the bottom between the greater and the lesser evil. That's my uh, perspective here. The lesser evil is not going to solve this for us. Uh, we the people, the uncompromised public interest, are the ones who are going to solve this. And that was uh, Jill Stein, Green Party presidential candidate. And one thing maybe just worth mentioning in terms of this issue we talked about, about getting actually getting on the ballot in the states, uh, in, the, in the 50 states, and she's got on to 48 of them. And I asked her how much that cost, and she thought around half a million dollars. So, you know, a very significant amount of money. And she said it would have been much more if she didn't have uh, such an organisational base, but it still cost half a million. A reminder of our panel, Zoltan Istvan, presidential candidate of the Transhumanist Party, Lawrence Lessig, professor at Harvard, to raise issues about money and funding, campaign finance and so on, uh, stood for the nomination in the Democratic Party this time round. Uh, Greg Orman, independent Senate candidate in Kansas in 2014, who got 43% of the vote as an independent, and Professor Marjorie Hershey from Indiana University. Professor Hershey, can you talk us through the electoral college system? How does it work and why is it unfair? Why does it make some votes more important than other votes? <laughs> and uh, how many hours would you like uh, that'd be, to do uh, this? We've thing. got about a minute for that. OK. <laughs> <laughs> The Electoral College uh, is confusing to most Americans. Uh, it's not very popular to most Americans either, but it'll be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to change it. It means that instead of a direct popular vote determining the president, the vote in each state, the majority of that vote 
chooses people who are electors, in other words, voters, for the candidate who got the majority. Those electors uh, send their votes to Congress, and so it's the majority party in each state whose candidate gets the electoral votes. That means that um, if a minor party candidate were to get the most votes in one state, he or she would win the electoral votes of that state. It's more typical in recent years for minor party candidates to get about the same percentage of the vote in all states. Ross Perot got close to 19% in just about all the states. That meant he got zero electoral votes. 19% of the popular vote, but no electoral votes. So typically in the electoral college system, it's only a regional candidate, somebody with strength in the South or somebody with strength in the West who's likely to get any electoral votes at all. Yeah, it, it really is a system that crowds out the, the smaller parties. So can I just ask our, our candidates, the, the, the various candidates we've, we've got on the panel, whether you would prefer this presidential system to be done by a national referendum, you know, with, without this intervening electoral college in the, in the middle? Why don't we start with you, uh, Larry Lessig? Well, I mean, it's first important to recognize that there is actually a process right now through state compact to transform the Electoral College. It doesn't actually need an amendment to the Constitution. The states can agree to proportionally allocate their delegates. And uh, and that's actually pretty close to having the sufficient number of states to make it the majority number of Electoral College delegates. So it actually could change. But just, you know, you jumped from Jill Stein uh, to the Electoral College, and we lost a really important opportunity in this conversation. What Jill Stein said was crazy, just crazy. Uh, and this is why. Look, I am totally with her that the Commission on Debates is completely illegitimate in the way that they set the percentage that you need to be able to get into the debate. They say you need 15% in September, which means no sensible person would invest in an independent candidate when they need to, like in January or February, because the likelihood of being able to get up to 15% is so small. So what that does is systematically exclude people from being able to participate. And I certainly would love to have seen a debate that included Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, as well as the two main party candidates, certainly. But once we are in a world where we know that the results of the election um, will turn on third-party candidates in states in, in states like Florida, for example, or Ohio, then to say that you don't want to pick the lesser of two evils is just insane. Because what? Do you want the greater of two evils to be the candidate who becomes the president of the United States? I completely agree with the anti-war people who criticize Hillary Clinton. Don't get me wrong. I think the military policy of the United States is completely self-defeating. We are the Death Star, and we have not learned the lesson of Star Wars that the Death Star always loses. But the idea that you would therefore vote for Jill Stein or for Gary Johnson and risk the crazy man Donald Trump becoming president is insane. It has no practical recognition okay. of what life in a democracy is. That's learning to live with different people who have different views and accepting the choices they give you when those choices you, matter. You, you make a lot of points. Uh, anyone else got any views on, on the, the Jill Stein interview before? Before we, before we move on to the Electoral College. This is Greg. I, I would just say I would echo what, what Professor Lessig said. I, I think ultimately we're faced with a choice in this election. And what I've told people is if you want to send a message that you're dissatisfied with both choices and you live in one of those states that happens to be a solid blue state or a solid red state, uh, feel free to register your displeasure by voting for a for a third party candidate at this Absolutely. point. But if you're in one of the states that, that is going to decide this election, I think you need to make a decision between the two candidates 
candidates who are running for the major parties right now, as unfortunate as that is. This is Zoltan and Ishvan, and I, I'm going to disagree here. Just on a philosophical basis, I want to believe. I want to believe that my vote matters. And I think there are many, many millennials out there, many, many young people that also want to believe. And while I understand, you know, the choices here, I do still encourage people to vote their heart, even if it leads to um, something that we all don't want. Absolutely. The vote matters. The vote of the 96,000 people in Florida in 2000 who voted for Ralph Nader mattered. What it did was elect George Bush. And that mattered dramatically because it led us into the most insane war that America has ever conducted, an incredible budget deficit produced by crazy tax cuts. It mattered in a completely destructive way. Now, however bad George Bush was, the idea that Donald Trump isn't a thousand times worse is just not tenable. This, this, It would matter again in in 2016, but it would be much more devastating than it was in 2000. Sultan? You know, I, I agree with the professor. It, it will be devastating, but unfortunately, I just feel like standing my ground on the philosophical principle. It's not a good art of a compromise. It's certainly not diplomatic, but I'm only 43 years old. I represent a lot of young people, and we really want to still believe that we can make a difference. Yep. And I realize the difference isn't going to go away that a, a lot of other people want, but at least we've uh, we've kind of stayed true to our, our inner spirit, our, our but, heart. But I guess your co-panelists are saying you could stay true to your heart by trying to reform the system to give the third party, uh, or some of them are saying, to give third party candidates a better shot at it, but that uh, that would be the way to go about it rather than encouraging people to vote in swing states uh, for third party candidates who could produce an outcome that nobody, you know, the majority don't actually want. Yes, no, I, and I fully understand that. But I think ultimately when it comes down to is if we really believe we live in a democracy and we really believe that this is American, everything, you know, I grew up thinking it stood for. Well, um, you know, I want to be able to vote for who I want and hope that my decision makes its uh, its impact. I realize, you know, uh, that could go the wrong way, but I still feel very strongly about supporting whoever I want to support in order to uh, remain, uh, you know, true to my American beliefs. L Larry Lessig, you said you don't agree. And I think Greg Orman, you, you don't agree. Professor Hershey. <laughs> I think that uh, what you said earlier, Owen, makes a great deal of sense. If we have 1,800 and some people running, uh, I was going to say 800 odd people, and uh, I'm sure that that's the case with the majority of them, that we've got uh, a choice that gives us an opportunity for representation, but it doesn't fulfill the needs of a democracy in giving us the opportunity to come to some level of agreement at the end of the election as to what's going to happen next. Somebody has to be a gatekeeper. Somebody has to be able to say, you know, as Larry Lessig just did, this is nuts. We can't let this happen. Representation is very important. So is the ability to actually form a government and do something. And uh, the okay. ability to form a government is hindered by nobody being around to be the one who says the Prohibition Party candidate probably should not be in the debate and maybe shouldn't be on the ballot. I'm going to pu pu push this forward in this way. We, we just uh, mentioned the Electoral College earlier and... Uh, it, you know, there obviously are different electoral systems. And in the UK now, it's quite interesting, different elections have... A, we've actually got a wide variety of electoral systems being used from the, the first-past-the-post to various proportional systems for different kinds of elections in the UK. And I'm wondering whether there's any consideration of that in the United States. And I think in Maine, there is a suggestion of getting slightly more representative system uh, in place. Can anyone talk me through what's happening in Maine? This is Greg Orman, and I've, I've been involved pretty directly in the Ranked Choice Voting Maine initiative. 
Uh, and the initiative there is, is to change the system for electing both state and federal candidates in Maine uh, to one where voters go into the uh, voting booth and rank the candidates in order of their preference. And so if there were three candidates running for a particular office, they would go in and they would say, here's my first choice and here's my second choice and here's my third choice. If their first choice in that instance isn't one of the top two vote getters, their votes are automatically reapportioned to their second choice. Uh, what this does is gets rid of the lesser of two evils argument. It allows voters to actually go in and, as Zoltan has suggested, vote their hearts, vote for the candidate that they actually want to win without the fear that their vote is going to lead to the greater of two evils being elected. And right now, the, the initiative seems to be well-received in Maine. It's going to be on the ballot on November 8th. It's already a system that they use in, in Portland, Maine. And so far, uh, again, knock on wood, it seems like a, a change and a reform that would ultimately make it a lot easier for independent candidates to run and win. It's very, very interesting. So, so the, on November the 8th, there will be effectively a referendum in Maine on whether to go to that system, right? That's correct. Why, why can't the Electoral College votes be decided on this more representative system? They could be. They, they can could be, be decided yeah. however the state chooses. That's what I thought. So, so, so I mean, this could be very profound. Well, it, the place that it could actually be quite important, the same group that's pushing it in Maine is, is pushing a version of this for the United States Congress. We could create the same ranked choice voting system with multi-member districts in Congress. So you have like five members representing one district. And what that would effectively do is create almost a proportional, uh, proportionally representative system across the United States. Are the two party, main parties resisting this kind of reform? I think in general, the two parties are, are resisting reform where it threatens their grip on power. And so what, what we've seen is reforms in states like Minnesota end up being resisted by the Democrats. Reforms in states like Kansas end up being resisted by the Republicans. Uh, and so it, it really depends on the state you're in, whether or not the reform is something that's embraced or resisted by, by uh, a major party. OK, I'm going to move it on to another area which we haven't really covered. In, well, you have, as a few of you said, it's very difficult to get media coverage. And uh, how much control do the two main parties have of the media? It is often the case that debates in, on US TV, from what I can see, have a presenter and then the two parties. So the third parties are not really getting much of a look in there. How big an issue is that? Why, why, who'd like to come in on that? So this is Larry. I, I think the media plays a really crucial role here. And it's not just who they present. What I discovered when I was trying to become a candidate, or at least to get to the debates, was it's also that the debates themselves depend on the media to select who can participate. The Democratic Party said it depends on the polling numbers from um, these major national media organizations. Uh, but what we found initially was that the media organizations wouldn't even include our names, uh, include my name on their polls. And when finally we convinced them to include my name and began to get uh, the numbers necessary to qualify, that's when the Democrats began to shift their rules. But when we said to them, like, well, you know, I, I've raised more money than more than half the other candidates. So why wouldn't I at least be a legitimate enough person to have a name on your polls? They, you know, said that's just our judgment about who we're going to include and who we're not going to include. So uh, that they too are directly responsible for how this process develops. 
Well, I, I think I think Larry makes a great point, and and we've seen it in state and local races as well. To go back to something that that uh, Dan Savage said, there actually are a number of independent candidates running in state and local races. In fact, in Kansas right now, we have uh, more independents or third party candidates running than than really we've had in in decades. Uh, and so we are seeing them run up and down the ballot, and we're seeing the same sort of media bias for those candidates at state and local races that Larry mentioned at the, at the federal race. And we've got these inherent biases, this notion that you're always throwing away your vote or that independents are really partisans in disguise. All of that uh, makes it very, very hard for independent candidates to get attention. We made a different decision in our race. Uh, we decided to actually go up on the air uh, and start running ads in July while the Republicans were still in the middle of their primary. And my goal was to get to 20% in the polls by the time the Republicans were done with their primary. And, mm -hmm. and we were able to then break through that gravitational pull. And once we did, the media paid attention to us. OK, well, there is a way around that, and we're going to hear it now, because, uh, Zoltan, I'd like you to react to this, you know, increasingly there are media out there that you do have access to. You don't have to go through the big media houses and big media companies now. You can go online and do it yourself. So here are some campaign ads from this campaign, which haven't gone on TV. These are all online. I would like to introduce the only conservative candidate for president of the United States, Mr. Evan McMullen. It's time to reject the lesser evil and fight for the greater good, like our lives depend on it, because they do. I'm Dr. Jill Stein. I approve this message. I'm Governor Gary Johnson. I'm Governor Bill Weld. I'm running for president. I'm running with him. Give us one term, America. And if after four years you decide you don't like peace, prosperity, and freedom, you can always vote a Trump or a Hillary back into office again. What say, America? You in? Come on. Well, they're some of the, the bigger candidates, but uh, there have been many other examples of those, of people putting ads up online. Zoltan Ishvan, does that now offer you, uh, as a, a small party candidate, a way to defeat the system in a way? First off, media is just so critical for any campaign. And uh, for the panel members that don't know, I actually interviewed... Um, with Gary Johnson to be his vice president before he picked Governor Bill Weld. And what I'm seeing with Gary Johnson right now, as well as myself, is in order to be in the national media, we constantly have to do almost outlandish things in order to even get recognized. Uh, I'm saying, I constantly say this, I'm a columnist advice, I have to write wild articles. I have to say bizarre things just to try to even get into the media uh, game in the first place. I see that dilemma, but you're really saying there that social media, that, uh, that new media is not digital media, is not powerful enough yet to give you a platform. No, I don't think it's powerful enough yet. And it kind of goes back to this vicious circle we've been talking about, that everything leads to only a two-party system where you, the third-party person can't break into it. And, and uh, once we kind of change the cultural opinion of Americans and say, hey, your vote matters, a third-party candidate can actually emerge and, and take the presidency, until that point happens, I don't see that much changing, sadly. This is Larry. Donald Trump, uh, who was given $3 billion in free media, Donald Trump got that by doing exactly um, the things Zoltan was saying, by saying the craziest things from the very beginning of his campaign. And, and what we know from people who are watching and paying attention to what was going on inside that campaign is that whenever 
the attention was flagging, he would go out and say another insanely crazy thing. And people would say, you're going you're gonna to destroy yourself if you call John McCain a coward. But what he knew, and turns out he was right, was it wasn't important, the substance of what he was saying. What was important was that he was getting 24-7 coverage. And the reason he was getting 24-7 coverage um, was because the media could not resist it. They couldn't say no, because if they said no, they paid for it in the bottom line. They didn't uh, well, get the same viewers. In that case, can I ask, do any of the panel, would, would you like to go to a British system where in the campaign it's, it, it's very tightly regulated? In the electoral run-up, it is very tightly regulated. Well, Who gets what time on TV? We would have to change the Constitution to be able to do that in the United States. The Supreme Court has made it very clear that we couldn't adopt the British system without uh, amending the First Amendment. Well, and as someone who uh, went through precisely uh, this Trump phenomenon while I was trying to promote my book, I can't tell you how many times I was bumped from an interview because of something that Trump said that morning. Okay, let's look ahead. And I'm going to ask you, in uh, a decade's time, will any significant change to this system have occurred? Professor Hershey. No. <laughs> Let me add that that's an unusually terse statement for a professor. Um, I think the likelihood is fairly slim, and I think that uh, we've seen um, for, for decades in the American political system that minor party candidates uh, fade close to Election Day. They have their greatest strength in the spring and the summer when people are still exasperated and think that um, they can uh, make a choice that is going to represent their views as they get closer to the election and they realize that that choice is not going to win. Minor party candidates fade. Unless we see changes in the ballot access laws, and frankly, for all of you who are raising money, um, that's where I would put it if I were you. I don't think we're probably going to see an, a, a very strong third-party movement. Uh, Greg Orman, am I wrong to think that Maine offers a way ahead? No, you're not at all. And in fact, the the goal, if we're successful in Maine, is to then bring that ranked choice voting initiative to the other 25 states in America that have citizen-driven initiatives. I actually do believe we're going to see change. I'm not as critical of, of ballot access laws as Professor Hershey is. I actually think, you know, in Kansas, we ultimately got 12,000 signatures to get on the ballot, but it was a real good opportunity to, to engage with candidates or with the voters. But I do believe that we are going to see change. I think the trends are there. Uh, while 43% of Americans are politically independent, and if we could have more time, we could we could address this this partisans in disguise argument. If you look at the millennial generation, it's actually closer to 55% of millennials are politically uh, independent. Uh, I think the American people have decided that the two-party system is rigged and it's not serving them, and all the academic evidence suggests they're right. Okay. And so I think that the combination of voter dissatisfaction, a higher percentage of voters becoming politically independent, and a very coordinated effort to start breaking down some of these barriers across the country, I think is going to yield results. Sultan Ishvan? Well, I have a strange answer here, but um, I don't think there's going to be any fundamental change over the next 10 years in how people deal with things. But what's going to change things is technology. A lot of people don't realize, but probably within 10 or certainly within uh, 15 years, we will have machines that are as smart as human beings. And that changes the, the dynamics about how we actually look at society and whether robots might actually have even voting rights at some point far into the future, as crazy as that sounds. So I think what's going to happen is um, as technology increases, we're going to have to look at our political system and ask ourselves, you know, does it satisfy us in terms of really being a democracy with so much crazy and radical technology uh, literally at our doorstep? Okay, thanks very much. And Larry Lessig. 
I'm exactly the opposite from Professor Hershey here. I think absolutely we're going to see change. The first place we're going to see uh, changes is with the corrupting influence of money. That That's going to happen. And once that happens, I hope that the principle that that stands for pushes us towards a more general appreciation, the need for equal participation in our political system, which would mean changing the fundamental inequality that exists inside of our political process, especially at the House of Representatives right now. I'm very grateful to all of you. A most interesting uh, discussion. Thank you very much for guiding us through the system and what you think's wrong with it, what you think's right with it and how it may change. Uh, if you'd like to listen to the programme again, or indeed any from our archive, uh, there are many, many programmes there on the site. That's bbcworldservice.com forward slash newshour extra. Tweet me at Owen Bennett Jones without the S, Owen Bennett Jones, uh, double N, double T. And uh, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. From Owen Bennett Jones, goodbye.